This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles tonight to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We'll begin reading in chapter 11, verse 45, and on into chapter 12 through verse 11. John eleven forty five through 12, 11. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. The Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always... But me, you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, 
many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this evening, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would prepare our hearts to receive it. We would see the glories of your gospel shown forth, even as we see the skewed and distorted priorities of man. We pray that your son would shine through and that we would uh, hear of him and know him and proclaim him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we saw Jesus perform his greatest miracle thus far in the Gospel of John when he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. He did this not only to help his friends, this Mary and Martha and Lazarus, uh, these three people whom he loved, whom he cared for deeply, but to illustrate with a temporal event a great spiritual reality that he and he alone is the resurrection and the life. Now, he did not need to persuade his people of this. Martha believed that Jesus would raise Lazarus in the resurrection even before he raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember that Jesus' rivals, the Jews, the scribes and Pharisees, had asked Jesus to plainly tell them before that he was the Christ, the Messiah. But Jesus' followers already knew. They already had all the information they needed. Now, part of the reason that the scribes and Pharisees were looking for Jesus to say that is they were looking for grounds to arrest him and put him to death and silence him for good. If Jesus had just come out and said, I'm the Messiah, it's an open and shut blasphemy case. But Jesus has still been able, by his teaching and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, to communicate this reality to the people who are supposed to hear and believe it, those who are called to be Jesus' sheep. But this last miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, this has in many ways brought Jesus' life and public ministry, as John records it, to a point of no return. It's one thing if people are getting fed and healed. But once someone who's dead gets up and starts walking around again, there's no way to keep that bottled up. And so it is with the last miracle that the stage is set for our text this week. This text is a very important transitional section, and John is moving from Jesus' public ministry and miracles that have happened all over towards the final confrontation in Jerusalem. We will look at this text tonight in three points. First, we see a plot in chapter 11, verses 45 through 54. In reaction to this raising of Lazarus, Jesus' enemies ramp up their attacks against him and their attempts to stop him. Second, we will see preparation in chapter 11, verse 55 through chapter 12, verse 3. There are final steps that must be taken before Jesus is to go to Jerusalem and face his time, which has come. And then third and finally, we will see priorities in chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. We see a teachable moment for Jesus and his disciples. So again, we have a plot, we have preparation, and we have priorities. 
First, we look at a plot in chapter 11, verses 45 through 54. Now, we pick up immediately after the raising of Lazarus. I didn't go last week into the reactions to the raising of Lazarus. I wanted to save them for tonight as they help to point us to where things are going. In verse 45, we see that some of those Jews, some of the scribes and Pharisees who had come to mourn Lazarus's death, only to witness Lazarus being raised back to life, they were finally convinced they finally believed in Jesus. In a certain sense, this is Jesus' greatest triumph as far as his evangelistic endeavors go. Those who hated him, those who opposed him, those who wanted him dead, even some of them have now become his disciples. Now, Jesus had earlier promised to create one sheepfold out of two, Jews and Gentiles alike. He has even had some of the Judean Jews who have heard the voice of their shepherd and believe in him and follow him unto eternal life. Of course, the verdict is not unanimous. The power of unbelief is great. So great that even the sight of a dead man coming back to life isn't enough to convince them. Because again, this really isn't about proof or persuasion. It's about God's sovereign will, his election, the application of the Son's redeeming work by the Holy Spirit. Apart from this, you could see a dead person get up and start walking around, and it would not be enough to make you believe. At best, it could be a means that God would use to open your eyes to his truth. Really, the dead coming to life is a picture of that reality. Paul says so in Ephesians chapter 2. Those without Christ are dead in their sins and trespasses, and dead people can't do anything to raise themselves. And so some of those who persisted in their unbelief and spiritual death decide to be tattletales and go back to Jerusalem and report to their bosses what Jesus has done. Now just imagine having that job, going back and having to explain to your leadership that hates Jesus and wants him dead that Actually, death doesn't seem to be that big of a problem for Jesus. He just raised a guy from the dead. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for the breaking of that news. But upon receiving this news, the Pharisees and the priests gather a council. They must call a special meeting to, in their eyes, deal with the latest crisis. And they realize the trouble that they are now in. We see it beginning in the end of verse 44. What shall we do for this man works many signs? It's a bit of an understatement at this point. He works signs that no one has ever done or ever could do. But then the next comment betrays their true priorities. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come take away both our place and our nation. Here we see stated clearly what has been on display all along. Scribes and the Pharisees oppose Jesus because they are more interested in their positions, their power, their influence over the people. Now it is not as though their concerns were completely unfounded. It's pretty hard to compete in the power and influence department with someone who can raise the dead. 
But there is another concern behind this. They believe that if Jesus' movement continues to grow, it will draw the ire of the Roman Empire. Remember that at this point, Judea, as with all of the former land of Israel, was not an independent nation. They had some measure of local rule, but they were a province of Rome. They were conquered. They were a vassal state. They were occupied and taxed by the Romans. Now, the Roman Empire, though it was typically pagan and polytheistic up to this point, even in most places, mandating and demanding the practice of the state-sanctioned pagan religions, the Roman Empire generally tolerated Judaism. It was a religion apart from the state religion that people were allowed to practice without interference. The council was afraid that this and the other benefits they have could be at risk. There's too big of a movement among the Jews. The Romans could see it as a threat and they could come and snuff it out. And the Jews would lose whatever power and protection they have. In fact, while not directly related to Christianity, such a thing does happen later in 70 AD when the Jews rebelled and the Romans violently and destructively put them down and suppressed them. So the Pharisees, they want to keep their brand of Judaism. And they want to keep what power and influence in Israel they have. But they're missing the point, or at least one of the points of Jesus' life and work. Jesus has come to be the fulfillment and the end of the Old Covenant. He comes as a great high priest and makes a once-for-all perfect sacrifice for sin that no other priest could do in any temple or any city. The Judaism that the Pharisees are actually trying to save has already found its culmination and fulfillment in Jesus. The Pharisees are just too lost and stubborn to see it. Now this discussion continues. We next hear from Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. The high priest at that time served on a rotation. Now he makes a statement that says more than he intends, and in fact it is prophetic. He says, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now Caiaphas is speaking in very worldly and very evil terms. Caiaphas thinks that it is better to kill Jesus than to let the aforementioned chaos and turmoil at the hands of the Romans come. But what he doesn't understand is that his words actually describe what Jesus is doing and intends to do. He intends to die in the place of his people, his nation, the Israel of God, his sheepfold of Jews and Gentiles that are to become one. John even notes this layer of double meaning here. God, even being sovereign over the words and actions of his enemies, uses Caiaphas as a prophet to declare even in this council of enemies the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is going to die to save his people from their sins. It's not just going to be the particular religious and social and political entity of first century Judea. 
Now, it would seem that in these deliberations, Caiaphas delivered the decisive word, even as he didn't really even know himself what it meant. We see in verse 53 that they plotted to put Jesus to death. Now, they have already been plotting to put Jesus to death. They have made several attempts on his life, but now they are setting into motion the final plot, the one that will result in Jesus' death. Jesus' time is near. He is about to give himself into their hands. For a time yet, Jesus will elude them. We see that after this, he does not walk among them in Judea. At least for a while, he goes to the hill country of Ephraim, to make his final preparations. But there will come a time when he will return again to Judea. And this brings us to our second point. After the plot, we come to preparation in chapter 11, verse 55 through chapter 12, verse 3. So in verse 55, we see that the time of the Passover has come near. This will be Jesus' last Passover on this earth. And the fact that it will be the Passover, in fact, it will be the Passover in which the meaning and significance of Passover finally comes to its highest and fullest expression. Now, as was the custom at the Jewish Passover, many of the Jews were coming to the city and were undergoing purification rituals. According to the Old Testament ceremonial laws, People had to be ritually clean. They had to be ceremonially pure to partake of the Passover, which was the highest and most important of the Jewish festivals. As the Jews assemble in Jerusalem, those of the party opposing Jesus wonder about his whereabouts. Will he come to the feast to do what good Jewish religious observance required, or will he stay away knowing the plot against him? We also see that the council, the chief priests and Pharisees, gave a command that if anyone saw Jesus, they were supposed to report him. They were ready to arrest Jesus and put him to death as soon as they could. But before we see Jesus enter Jerusalem, we get this interlude at the beginning of chapter 12. Jesus returns to Judea, but to his friends in Bethany, a few miles away the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They have a meal. And wouldn't you know it, Lazarus is there eating. Now this is significant because if Lazarus had just come back as some ghost or incantation, he wouldn't need to eat. But he's there, alive as ever, eating with Jesus and his disciples. We see that Martha was serving the dinner. But then there is the matter of Mary. We see that Mary comes to Jesus with this very costly perfume, this oil of nard. So this was an oil extracted from a plant that probably grew in India. It was a fine imported good. And Mary uses it to wash Jesus' feet, which she then wipes with her hair. Now this was a very powerful picture of condescension and self-sacrifice. I mean, even in our day, we generally think of feet as unpleasant. And we live in the day of shoes and socks and indoor plumbing and regular bathing that just hadn't really caught on in the first century world. Back then, people walked just about everywhere. They wore sandals. They wore open shoes. And so feet 
were filthy. They were disgusting. Washing one's feet in any way was a dirty and messy and even demeaning task. But Mary does it, and she goes the extra mile out of her love for Jesus. She uses this very expensive perfume and wipes it off with her hair. Can you imagine? But Mary is demonstrating a powerful truth by her actions here. Jesus is the treasure of greatest price. He is more important, more valuable than anything else. But not everyone is happy with this situation. This brings us to our final point. After the plot and preparations, we come to priorities in verses 4 through 11. One of Jesus' disciples is very upset at Mary's sacrificial act. This would be Judas Iscariot. Now, John doesn't mince words about Judas. And why would he? Judas will go down as one of the most infamous men who has ever lived. And John points out right away that this Judas is the one who is going to betray Jesus. And Judas is upset about this expensive perfume being used on Jesus. He asks why it was not sold for 300 denarii so that the money could be given to the poor. Now remember that a denarius was about a day's earnings for a common laborer. So this perfume would have cost close to a year's wages for the average person. That's a lot of money. It seems that Jesus and his disciples were engaged in some kind of mercy ministry helping poor who had need. We don't hear much about it until now which is notable since many people, even in our day, seem to think that caring for the poor and financial charity towards those ends is the highest and purest expression of Christian faith and practice. It seems here that it's a relatively minor detail. This is the first time we've heard about it in John, and it's not really been made a major emphasis. Now, it's not that helping or giving to the poor is wrong, but it's not the highest priority. Of course, then we find out in verse 6 what Judas's real interest was. Seems that Judas was the disciple's treasurer. He had the money box. He kept the funds that Jesus and his disciples used for the things that they needed and the things that they did. But he was not a good treasurer. He was, in fact, the worst kind of treasurer. He was a thief. He was an embezzler. He was taking money for his own use. See, Judas loved money more than anything else, and that will eventually be his undoing. Now, Jesus rebukes Judas for his skewed priorities. Now, Jesus would have known that Judas was a thief. He could have called Judas on the carpet for this right then and there and fired him and sent him away, or worse, So why does Jesus keep Judas around? He's been there the whole time. He's been stealing for a while. But Jesus knows what he is doing. In fact, he will use Judas's evil and his greed to accomplish his own purposes. Who is going to betray Jesus into the hands of his enemies by the end of the Passover week? It will be Judas. Though Judas is evil and loves money more than Jesus, 
Jesus uses Judas as the means that he will use to give himself into the hands of his enemies. He will, as the good shepherd, go willingly to lay his life down for the sheep, using Judas's greed and love and money, love of money, to bring this to pass. And so, instead of calling out Judas's thievery, he instead speaks of what is about to come and why Mary is in the right. He says, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. Jesus reveals that the time of his death is near. What Mary is doing is anointing him for burial. He is already as one dead. He has purpose to go to the cross and bear God's wrath to save his people from their sins. Commenting here on verse 7, William Hendrickson writes, Mary knew what she was doing. She actually believed that before long Jesus would be put to death by his enemies. Would his friends be given the opportunity to anoint his body? Yet this honor must not be withheld. Mary owes so much, so very much to Jesus. To him she owes her salvation and the recovery of her brother Lazarus from the very realm of the dead. Hence she had decided to keep the ointment for the day of her Lord's burial. Not, however, in the sense that she literally wanted to keep the jar tightly closed until that day it actually arrived, for that might be too late, but thus that she would keep it until a good opportunity would present itself, and then she would anoint him in anticipation of his burial. It was now or never." End quote. It would have been fairly obvious by this time that the resistance against Jesus was great. He had come back to Judea, and there was a good chance he wasn't leaving this time. And Mary seems to anticipate this. And she wants to pour out her love and devotion to Jesus while she still can. It's a sobering but beautiful picture. And it makes the stench of Judas's greed all the more egregious. But Jesus adds another comment in verse 8. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Jesus is about to leave them. There will always be poor people. There will always be poverty in this fallen and sinful world for as long as it goes. There will always be resources and there will always be need for resources and even a legitimate interest in the church to help the poor. But that day in Bethany was not the time for that. It was a time for the most important thing, the most important one, Jesus Christ, to reveal the coming reality of his death and to be anointed for his death and burial. Now again, we care about the poor. The church through all its history has cared much for the poor and helped the poor. So we should help the poor but most of all, we help them to know and hear and see Jesus. The church's primary business is Jesus Christ, the gospel, the means of grace that he has given to us. 
Helping the poor is a means to the gospel and a means to loving our neighbor, but it is not the sum total of the faith like the social gospel and many in our world today would like us to believe. Now, starting in verse 9, we see the ominous transition. We see that many of the Jews knew that Jesus was there in Bethany, and they even came there. Now, that wasn't their only interest to find Jesus. They also wanted to see Lazarus alive as ever and eating a meal. And some of the Jews see this and they believe. They come as friends. They come as disciples. But then we see the depths that Jesus' enemies are willing to descend to. In verse 10, we see that the chief priests not only want to kill Jesus, they're trying to get Lazarus too. They're so blinded by their hatred of Jesus that they'll even kill Lazarus, a man whose only offense is being alive after he was dead. But because of Lazarus, they are losing their power and influence. They're losing their positions. And so he, too, has to go. We see in this passage such twisting of priorities. We see Judas in his greed. He wants money to spend on himself. He cares so little for Jesus that even this gift that one of his friends would give him Judas seizes a wasting of something that should have been his. Well, Judas will reap what he has sown. We also see the skewed priorities of the Pharisees and the priests. They care only for their power and position and authority, keeping the Romans off their backs. They want to keep control. They want to keep the status quo. They want things to go on the way they always have. So not only do they not believe Jesus, but they hate him and they oppose him and they're going to try to kill him. And they're even willing to kill Lazarus if it furthers their goals. Such skewed priorities we see in this passage. But what about us? What are our priorities? Do we seek after the things of this world? Money, power, influence, tradition, wealth, what if we are so caught up in our own things that we miss Jesus? What Jesus said that night in Bethany proved true. He was going to die. He was going to suffer the cursed death of the cross. He was going to be buried. He was going to be separated from his people for a time. But this he did willingly, voluntarily to save his people from their sins, to bring them forgiveness and everlasting life. Friends, do not miss Jesus. The offer of the gospel is given to you again tonight. Repent of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Do not let the cares and pleasures and priorities of this world distract you. There is no other name given under heaven by which man can be saved. Come to Jesus and live. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word as it shows to us and reveals to us the glory of Christ and what he has come and what he has purposed to do, to lay down his life 
for his children, for his sheep, to bring a people from every tribe and tongue and nation into his kingdom. But we also are in this text confronted with how skewed human priorities can be and how they can even cause us to neglect and ignore and miss Jesus because we are so interested in our own things and what we want. And I pray, Father, that none here would miss Jesus. If there are any here who do not know you and do not know him, that by your spirit you would regenerate them, that you would work faith in them unto everlasting life. I pray that all of us would recognize the preeminence of Christ and the glory of Christ and how he is the treasure of greatest price and that we would be faithful to take him into a lost and dying world that needs to hear of him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.